Welcome to episode four of the Uncharted 80s podcast. I'm here with my good buddy, Noel. Welcome, Noel. Hi. And today we have a real treat for you. Uh, following on from our first episode, uh, where we featured Screen 3 and the Faith Brothers, we've now managed to secure Lee Hirons from the Faith Brothers. Um, we're going to talk to him all about the Faith Brothers and their journey uh, in, in music. And as you know, we're trying to build a spotlight onto bands that perhaps didn't get some of that uh, recognition or some of the no- notice uh, back, in the, uh, back in the 80s. History handed down like Big Brothers clothes. Madmen and giants cast off, stretched and frayed, or tailor-made. The news of the old world hangs on slender shoulders now. Every lesson been denied, every question pushed aside, every dream unrealized can begin anew when I meet with you at even tide. You know what you can do, you know what you can do, you know what you can do. So Lee, welcome to the podcast. It's so terrific to see you. That's my pleasure. Great to see you. Um, I'll, just too quickly before we uh, get into the questions, just to say as as fans, we were pretty, uh, obviously pretty sh- shocked by the passing of Billy and uh, just to send our condolences to you, being very close to him on that as well. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so yeah. that sort of leads me nicely into the first question, which is, uh, when did you first meet Billy? Did you sort of grow up together or? Yeah, we did. We grew up up the, the song Fallen Court. That's based on the, that's the place where we lived. Um, I moved in there. It was basically a big sprawling council estate, 400 families in there. Originally built in the 1930s, refurbished in the 60s. And I believe it was the first council estate to have like bathrooms, with proper baths and things like that, uh, inside toilets. Um, I moved in there when I was about four, so we got to early 60s, 62, and Bill came in a couple of years after. And we were firm friends by the time, I guess, we were about 11. We'd obviously played around together, football and stuff, a little bit before that. And uh, I guess I was 13 when Bill suggested we formed a band. He'd done a bit of acting in the past, Bill, and done a bit of stage here and then, went to acting school, bought himself a little cheap uh, Gibson Les Paul copy, I think it was a Jensen, if I remember rightly. I didn't, I didn't have a guitar, and he said, let's start a band, and it really started there, and we were firm friends from that day, yeah. You must have had some, you know, the, the, some musical influences of that time, must have yeah. been, you know, well, incredible, what were they? It was the best time to be alive, you know, the, the, the change in music you had from the mid-60s to the mid to late 70s was everything, you know, before that it wasn't a much, but you, everything came along, didn't it, you know, with the obviously all the beautiful pop from the 60s was brilliant, then you had the psychedelic stuff, then all the rock came in, heavy rock, disco, soul arrived, and then punk, all this stuff, and it was all merging together, so we were part of all that, yeah, so your record collection was fantastic and the top of the pops you know one week it'd be motorhead number one the next week it'd be the nolan sisters you know much like japan is probably still like that now it was famous for being like that you could have and everyone could watch top of the pops there was it was the only program on the tv really in in that time in the early 70s you can't underestimate that top of the pops how big it was i think people these days just don't know do they I don't know if you one of the parents on top of the pops on a thursday i think it was thursday friday night you'd sell a hundred thousand records that weekend down easily yeah, so that, and it was the only program apart from the whistle test, which was late night more adult. That when we got you get into that as teenagers as well, but it was really made more what they called musos, I guess. But we never considered ourselves as musos. We didn't like records with big long guitar solos and things like that. You know, but we did like everything. And the great thing about living on that estate, you had different kinds of music blasting out of every house. There was a, at the the entrance to Fulham Court is a um, big archway, which you may have seen on the cover of the Luna Kippers record that we made back in uh, before the Faith Brothers. We had a picture of ourselves walking in through the arch of Fulham Court, and just by that arch was a, a guy that repaired TVs and stuff, and he had this little side booth there where he sold records from, and it was all the reggae records, you know, and we used to get everything out of there. And at the time, you, you think, this is our stuff, and then when you look back through history, now they, all those Trojan records, and loads of them were number one records, but they didn't feel like that. Then. It just it felt like it was yours, you know. How did oh, you, fantastic. And how did you choose to, in terms of your musical, how did you cho- choose like your instrument? You know, which one you cho- you play bass, but what, what, yeah. how, how was that? Um, well, again, originally, we were both, well, Bill was a big Beatle fan. 
And um, so he, he really introduced me. So I remember them because obviously I was a kid and the Beatles were there, but I never really appreciated how brilliant they were. And so we, we got right into the Beatles. So, of course, he was then John Lennon. I was Paul McCartney. That was, that was it. Paul McCartney played bass. And at the time, we when we said, right, we're going to form a band, every kid in the flats decided, well, I'll be in that then, you know. And there were certain kids that we didn't want in there. But at one time, we had 11 members, you know. None of them had any instruments, but they all wanted to be in the band. And we whittled it down. And in the end, it was... Yeah, but listening to bass, like Paul McCartney playing bass, he, for me, he's still the greatest bass player ever. Um, if you listen to any Beatles song, just listen to bass playing, it's all brilliant. And he was very influenced by all the Motown stuff, and I always love Motown as well. And you, you can hear the bass lines from Motown and McCartney. They are very similar. But so I like that melodic style rather than just playing as fast as you can. I think it's where you don't play is the, the important bit. But um, So that's really where that came from. I just love the sound of the bass and it was seemed to me that for others, it, it looked a bit easier to play as well, I thought. So that might let some other people in I didn't really want in the band. <laughs> they, they weren't the kind of person you'd want in a band, trust me. You know, So that was part of that reason as well. And as far as then, when I had the story of getting his brother to play drums. Jimmy was Billy's elder brother, who sadly died at, at 29. But he was sitting in the front room watching TV and we said, we need to get a drummer. So we went and said, Jimmy... Do you want to play drums? And he said, yeah, hang on, I'm just finished this TV programme and I'll be in. <laughs> and then we went, we bought uh, £60, we paid for a drum kit we found in the shop in King Street, Hammersmith, which was basically you know, a small bass drum and snare and then a hat. That was it. And uh, he'd never played it before. And then we didn't know what we were doing, but he just hit them and it's, he said, oh, oh, you play and I'll come in after 10 seconds. That sort of vibe, you know, no counting in bars. And then we just forged our way through like that. And he, he played on our first record. You know, he, he became quite a good drummer. So the um, so was the was the legendary Luton Kippers the first band you had together? Or did you have other bands no, before the, that? the first band we had was a band called Scruff, which, funny enough, we made a record. We were signed to Track Records, which is part of the Polydor. And Track was run by the Who's manager, Chris Stamp. They had the Who, Jimi Hendrix. They were all the Johnny Funders and Heartbreakers were on at the same time. So Shaking Stevens was on there before we ever had a hit. And he was brilliant, but by the way. And you go and see him in the early 70s. And it was like watching a young Elvis, but Elvis could really do it. You know, he was he was really good. He had quite a reputation. And I saw him at the Nashville at the time all the punks were playing in there. Shaking Stevens had a great set in there. And in fact, Shaking Stevens gave us a PA system. He got himself a nice new PA and he gave us his old one. It was fabulous, that was. And I had that set up in my bedroom. I used to play records for it when we went doing gigs. And you could hear that around the whole estate. But anyway, yeah, the first band was Scruff. So that was me, Bill, and his brother, Jimmy. Fun, funny enough, that record's reissued this year. Um, Cherry Red got in touch with me, and they've released um, a three-pack CD, 60 artists, 60 tracks on there, sorry. You've got Sweet and Slade on them on this, called a, Whatever Happened to the Bother Boys or something like that. And they asked me, if because I own the rights to that record now, because track records don't exist anymore. And they, so they've licensed it, and it's on that album, and it's been pretty well received. <laughs> We, do, we, you know, I then when we made that record, I guess I was 17, 18, probably. We all would have been 19. And Vince was a guy that we, the other guitarist, and he could play the guitar. So we got him in the band. The four of us were the, the final members of that first band, Scruff, and we did quite a lot of gigs. Yeah. And and got a record deal and made a record. Yeah. So <laughs> we did some TV. There's a famous TV uh, clip of us. Uh, Get It Together was the program. It used to be on a four o'clock midweek presented by Roy North there's a lot of those programs in the early 70s did you move on was did you scruff then automatically morph into the Luton Kippers or was that uh, no but what happened that scruff went on and then after the record and all that kind of stuff we started just sort of moving in different directions so me and Bill <clears throat> we always played together we often did other things as well and often came back together picking up new musicians along the way and so after scruff I formed joined the band well formed a band with Gus who's their drummer Steve Howlett and Douglas Gus he was um, playing in a band called Straight Up which was him my brother Mark was in that band who ended up in the Faith Brothers and, and 
and a guy called Tommy Mason, um, who did a lot of gigs with us later on. They had a band called Straight Up, and they were doing some gigs about, and they they broke up. So me, Tom, and Gus formed a band called The Shout. Funny enough, that uh, Tony Fletcher, who became the Fate Brothers manager, and he, he saw when I think it was the third ever or second edition of the Jamming magazine when it was still a fanzine. We were on the front cover of that. But the Shout had a gig somewhere in Shepherd's Bush where we used to play. It was called um, called Nelson's Bar, and all the bands used to play there in the late seventies early 80s and we had a gig one night and Tom's dad became ill and he couldn't do the gig so Bill and my brother Mark came along we just jammed for the night playing his, uh, some of our songs some of his songs we stood in that night because Tom's dad was ill Tommy couldn't play and we called ourselves the Luton Kippers because to earn some money we all used to work for a removal company called Universal based in Ells Court and as you know a, a van has a Luton which is the bit above the cab on the van and we used to kip up there because we used to start six in the morning so we'd have a kip on there on the way to the job and probably on the way back, I'm going to say we called ourselves the Luton Kippers. We then formed the, the, the Luton Kippers and called them the legendary Luton Kippers. And uh, we did one gig, the return of a legendary, that sort of thing. And that really took off. And that was a really good band. And we had uh, we used to pack out the Greyhound. You get 400, 500 in there, and it was grand, you know. And uh, we had a lot of rock companies coming to check us out. Weren't quite sure what to make of us. So we didn't get to make a, any official releases, but we did our own. And uh, someone, funny enough, someone sent me a picture a little while ago now, Carlos, a friend of mine. They, they saw one in a record shop for 200 pounds have you got any under the bed yeah there's one that's amazing and what was good about that was it had some I kind of regard it as being kind of pre-faithful like it had the, a, an early version of Sunday and also yeah, had no, Fulham but, Court on it and so you know yeah, they were like yeah we had quite a few songs we had a lot of songs it was a good band Most bands, when we formed the Faith Brothers, the Kippers sort of just kind of burnt out, really. It was, again, we wanted to go to formation, and Bill and I decided we want to do something different. So then we just went on our own. And uh, But with Gobsy making the first Faith Brothers album, we had a lot of songs already from that we could reuse. So like most bands, making your first album is quite easy. You've got so much material to choose from. And they always go on about the second, the difficult second album. But yeah, the, the Kippers was a good band, with some good songs. So how did, the, did they, what happened with that? How did the Faith Brothers come about from that? Well, yeah, basically, well, Bill and I wanted to do, like I say, do something a bit different so basically I started working with, with the Big Sound Authority you remember them they were a good very band. much yeah yeah, yeah with Tony the singer Tony uh, the bass player Martin was, we went to school together but Tony they only did, he did Shepherd's Bush and they used to play another band called The Directions before that and they used to play Greyhound as well and they were brilliant we loved them we often played on the same night or we'd go and see each other and anyway Tony and I started writing together for a little while in between the Loon Kippers and the Faith Brothers and the Big Sound Authority, we were sort of doing some stuff together with their their drummer and he and I, and it was good. But then wasn't we weren't quite gelling. And then Bill approached me about you know, doing some doing some more stuff. So we spoke about that. And I always like working with Bill because he's a lyric, one of the best lyricists ever, without doubt. And my strength was always in, you know, coming up with arrangements and chord progressions and melodies and things like that. And then, and Bill and I said, right, this is what we're going to do. So we thought, how we do it? We thought, what we'll we do, we'll make a, a record of our own, which we did, which was the Tradesman's Entrance. Bill sold his guitar to get his money to pay his part of the recording. I was wow. working in London Transport at the time, so I could afford mine. And he really to get off got more guitars later on but at the time yeah was, money was a bit tight but we made so we recorded the tradesman's entrance the one song we got henry in who we'd met through another uh mutual friend who, and so he was in the kippers as well henry the latest stage of the kippers henry oh, wow. was in, yeah and he's like well again he's he, i've never worked with a pianist as good as him a lot i've worked with a lot of keyboard players he henry is as good as anyone i've ever heard of play he's just one of those you know he's just got it so we got him in to play the piano on, the, on the, that song and another friend of ours to play drums on it. We took our cards in silence
the B-side, we recorded on a little chord studio, which is a little four-track cassette recorder. We just did that on that. And then we put the record out, but only to journalists. But there was a journalist strike when, by the time the record landed on their desk. So oh, no. It, yeah, it didn't get any reviews, but then picked up one review in the Jamming magazine. I mentioned yes. that someone, a friend of ours, saw it one day somewhere. And, this, and we didn't see it for months, didn't know it was in there. And the reviewer was going on about this cruelly ignored single. has been out for three months and all that. So and when I saw it, it was Tony. So... We, we rang him up and he said, I knew I knew the name Hiram for somebody. He couldn't place it back with the shout, which was only a few years ago. He said his friend at A&M Records wanted to um, release it. So we thought, that's interesting. So we went to A&M Records room full and funny enough. So we had to see them and they're, and they're loving it. And they're talking, they'd like to put it out around December time. And we think, OK. From there, it was weird. The phone started ringing all other companies because they're all hearing about A&M want to sign this band. Who are this band? We didn't have a band. It was just it was just us to a Denver manager. Didn't have anyone. Where he was getting everyone come to ringing us up, giving us money to go and make some demos of how many songs you've got. And I can remember we went to see um, big publisher Dick Lee here, who um, Paul Wale, you know, my, George Michael, is massive, been in the industry for years, used to run Bell, Bell International back in the 70s and things like that. He, um, we played it to him and he's like, God, I've just heard 11 hits, you know, how much do you want sort of vibe? It was like a bit like that, you know. So it just went, it just went mad. And then, then every other company wanted, wanted to sign us in the end. I don't, I don't think it's that uncommon. We signed the deal at 11 o'clock on a Friday night because they were scared to let it go over the weekend, apparently. There, there was faxing back and forth, getting changes in the contract. And we signed to Siren, which is part of the Virgin thing. So, um, But the lawyer we had was actually Virgin's lawyer, so they had to get a different lawyer because we had him. That was John Kennedy, a great guy, still in touch with him. He um, was the trustee for Live Aid and that stuff. He funded all that stuff. We, so we had some big industries coming in in the early days. Everyone was interested. Everyone's going, yeah, this is this is, this is is it. Yeah. So it was a good time. And we still never had a band. Yeah. How did you get the Faith Brothers name then? Well, the Faith Brothers, the early days, there were down North End Road, which is a big marketplace where we lived. There was a shop down there where that was called Faith Brothers. They used to, we used to get all our clothes from and stuff like that when we were younger. But the name just seemed right. It just felt to how we felt about, about the world and about the, doing the right thing for everyone and all that kind of stuff. It just felt like the right name. And as soon as it was mentioned, it was like, yes, that's perfect. You know, because we I were. I used, to, I used to work in London. I used to go down on the underground and I remember seeing Faith Brothers stickers everywhere. Yes. Uh, those, yeah. those the classic sort of with, with the sort of logo on it. I think, was it Carl? Did you guys all get involved in sticking those all over London? We, we No, we did with um, Scrap. We used to do that. And our first one, we used to go along all the train thing up the escalator and put a sticker in between every single advert on, the, on every escalator. But with the Faith Brothers, the, the first campaign we did, which was uh, just... We had those T-shirts, had Faith Brothers. And it, of course, it wasn't long after the miners' strike and people were thinking it was something to do with miners. But we had those posters, five-foot five posters up across the country. The record company paid for that. But then before we'd even put a record out or even announced the band, just they'd have Faith Brothers everywhere and then put new posters up when the record came out. Oh, that's incredible. So when, how did you get the other guys, that, you know, in the band, uh, you know, Will and... and well, yeah, and basically, basically, when it was all kicking off, we realised we've got to get a band. We started auditioning drummers, firstly. Basically, we realised we were just trying to find someone that played like Gus, you know, who was in the Kipper. So we just said to Gus, come, will you come and join the band? He said, yes, of course. So he was back in. And then Henry, obviously, the keyboard player, came in and we decided we wanted some brass. So we got Will Tipper and Mark Alton and they were went to uh, Guildhall Music. So we found them out of there. They were only about 17, 18, I think, something like that. So maybe 19. Uh, by, by that time, I was 25, 26. Uh, so they were very young. They came down again. They auditioned straight away. They were in. We didnn't labour over. The only thing we laboured over was trying to find a, the right drummer and realised we were looking for a Gus. And so we just asked Gus to come back and he said, yeah. And thank God he did. You know, great, great player. How quickly did it get to, to a point where you were, you had enough songs for like Eventide? And what was that process to, to get to that you know, yeah, well, um, we had, obviously, as mentioned earlier, we had quite a few songs from the, the Kip stage that were to be reworked. Um, and then we were writing together both like, quite fluently. You know, there was a lot of, it, it was no, we were making like things like Stranger and Home Ground, um, Eventide. You know, we, we would basically more time with the lyrics, but they would be knocked up with uh, arrangements and things and recorded. We had our own little studio we built in that on that council estate, which is a story on its own. And, um, we would not, they would be done in a day to put the actual thing together, get it going. And then obviously the lyrics would take a lot longer now because Bill would work a bit. Once he had the idea, you know, he would hone it until he, until he was until it was perfect, basically. And I thought all his lyrics were perfect. 
so yeah, it was, it was we just we wrote a lot, yeah, and then quite, quite a lot of songs didn't get recorded. So he 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 did the lyrics, and you did you look after the music side of it then, in terms of yeah, on on those ones, yeah, some people could write music as well, the songs, lyric, uh, sorry, melodies and things too. He'd come up with those a lot of those on his own, but I said, but again, for me, for arrangement, I was always more involved in the arrangements and things like that. that I, that's the part I enjoyed most, and come up with face ideas. But no, the, the songs that are credited, Hirons, Franks, or Franks Hirons, they they are. That would be me, music, mainly in him lyrics. And then obviously there are some that just Bill and one or two that are just mine. But it was all, but all the bands would come in, like some people like Henry, you know, because they generally, it gives a nice chord progression, like Strange Home Ground. It's got that lovely verse party plays on there. That's a, that's a real nice set of chords on it. And the, the piano yeah. party came up to go on top of that. Yeah, it's majestic. It's lovely, you know. So obviously, when I first saw you at the, at the marquee, and uh, obviously yeah. you supported loads of bands over the years, so, yeah. uh, you must have had some really memorable gigs. I mean, the marquee ones were particularly great. Uh, I also yeah. remember going to see you at uh, Port uh, Redford Porterhouse with burnt out tour bus outside, which is a bit frightening when you get there. <laughs> um, <laughs> do you remember that? Um, but yeah. uh, I, I guess the, uh, the I mean the biggest one obviously was the U two, the long the all day with U two at Milton Keynes yeah. Bottle. What do you remember about that day? Well, the longest day. Yeah, it was yes. an interesting. It was an interesting time. But the, one of the best parts was the day before the sound check because we'd get to see you two sound check. You know, with nobody else there, and then that, that was quite good because I've always liked you two, and it was nice to see them. We met them. They 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 came to see us play when we toured with the Rats. You, they came to see us play in Dublin. There was a place called the TV Club. I think it's changed its name now. Um, and they basically had the circle blacked out so that they could go in there without any fans seeing them. So they got mad, and we went upstairs and met them after, and they were great. They joined us and the first thing Bono said to us is he's got our record and we're like oh great you know <laughs> and then when it came along on the day it it was um it was it was a great experience with the Ramones and all that and Billy Bragg all those R.E.M. all in there as well but a lot of the press were because Bono was going on about us a bit saying this band are going to be huge and all that most of the press were asking us well what do you what's it like having Bono saying you're going to be great and that wasn't the sort of question we wanted to answer you know so it was we were a little bit disappointed with that you know you ask us about us not about what else someone else thinks about us you know that kind of thing but it was it was a great day I, it's nowhere near as great as playing in the marquee. The marquee's a much better gig. There's those big things, you know, people at the back, they're like these little dots that you can't even see them. The sound, the wind is being blowing the sound around everywhere. I don't know as a support band whether the sound on stage is a bit quieter than it is for the main band. Well it definitely is. But um so you know it wasn't that enjoyable. It was it was cool, but it wasn't it wasn't nowhere near in the top of the Ava gigs no, nowhere near it. Um, so when you, I mean, you supported a lot of bands, obviously, you know, yeah. I'm saying this for the people listening to this, obviously the Broomtown Rats, the Alarm, the REM, yeah. Julian Cope, and obviously yeah. you two and, and the bands there. So did you, uh, I mean, you've mentioned now you 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 met you two and sort of hung out with yeah. them a bit. Did you meet other people, you know, Michael Stipe, you know, and other people and so on from other bands that you... Yeah, 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 I mean, really great relationship with REM. They were, they were brilliant. They um, they were big fans. You know, they, they would come and watch our soundtrack every single kit. They would come out and stand and on watch. And when we used to go and do radio interviews on the tour, they would come. We'd go on the same bus to the radio station and chat and hang out there. They were there. They were a really good bunch. And all the bands, to be fair, all the alarm guys as well, really supportive. When Pete Townsend went to Pete Townsend, he was another big fan. First thing he said when he came over to us, he, you know, he sort of plan what you want to say to these guys when you meet them. And the first thing he comes up, I love that track storyteller, you know. And you're about to tell him one of his songs you love, and you think you can't say it now because of what he said to you. But everyone seemed to, you know, give us support us and liked us, you know, as well, that's what we did. And I can see a lot of us in a lot of those bands as well. There's no doubt about that. Yeah. That um, momentum 
that you uh, you know, obviously you've got a little bit of profile, lots of publicity from a lot of those um, quotes yeah. that people said, and you you obviously were gigging away in on the circuits and and things. Yeah, how was that? How was that process of going through from you know because the marquee? I mean, I went there lots of times. Um, yeah. but it was a sort of it was a specifically uh, iconic venue, but obviously yeah. there was lots of other places you'd have played on that sort of whether it's the pub yeah. circuit in london or or yeah. you know, across the country what was that like yeah, it was interesting it's odd because we obviously as the scruff and the kippers we had done loads of gigs everywhere right mainly london but we had traveled about up down the country but when we had faith brothers first gig at the marquee having never done a gig and it was our first one was the marquee we're thinking who's going to come who's going to turn up you know and I can remember doing the soundtrack and going out and Bill and I going down to get something to eat around the corner of maybe a pint and thinking, God, I hope there's someone in there when we get back. And when we came back, they were queuing around the block, you know, and they couldn't let any more in and think that we were blown away. And that, and it just was from that day on, it, every gig was, it was just fantastic, you know. So I, I definitely prefer the small gigs, the small, the marquee is very hot. When you're on the stage and you've got the lights on you, when you go up to the microphone and Bless you, people standing under one of those hot lights. Even just get them doing backing vocals and knock you out because they're, they're right over the microphone. It is like someone is ironing your hair. And it's like you're soaked after the first song. And then after the second song, then you've got your second wind and you just go for an hour and a half to two hours, you know. But absolutely nothing like it. And so all those small gigs, and we were, as I say, well-received everywhere. Um, some of the university gigs were interesting, those those college tours and I don't really go anymore for bands it's all mainly tribute bands doing that circuit as far as I understand you know most of the bands are getting discovered and stuck on a support gig at Man City Stadium or something and then doing all big shows without going for all that that we went through so I think we were quite lucky that we had all those early days playing all the like the working men clubs in Acton and places like that you know there would be like five people in there and at the end so-and-so's got to get up and sing Frank's not just on with you, you know, you don't get paid. That's what, so we did it. We had all those sort of gigs doing those days. So we were, you know, we, we could, we just loved playing. When we, if there were five people in there or one person, we would play like 500 in there. And so playing on, on a big gig in front of all those thousands of Milton Keynes, that was, it was odd because we hadn't really done anything like that. We did a couple of, that Southwark Park, we did one there, it was better. It was a bit smaller. We had a bit more, the sound was better in there. It all, it all, for me, on stage, for it to be enjoyable, it's all about the sound. Yeah. And if it sounds right on stage, then you know, we're all us and the crowd. We're just one thing. We don't we don't do it to entertain people. We do it for the experience. And in the later gigs, Bill and did right. Bill and I did right at the end when we're still doing the Shepherd's Bush Empire you know, since 2009. That sort of time. I can we just look at each other and it's like wow. You know, it's just it's just it's just a feeling that you can't really explain. It's um, there's nothing like it. And that's, that's just, which is really why I don't do it anymore because I can never get that back. I'd never right. say never, but that, but that was, you know, I'd never get that back. I'd, I can't really see myself doing it. There are a couple of girls like if they asked me, I might do a number or two. But what we had was so special and so great. It's like I don't need any anymore. I've got all that. I've done it, and it was, it was brilliant. You know, awesome. I don't know if that was a good question. <laughs> what was that? No, it's really interesting. What was? Um... Did you have a favourite song that you like to play live? Faith Brothers. Uh, Storyteller was always good. That was always, if we were in a rush to do a sound check, I mean, that would be a good one to do a sound check to. Because we'd start with just Gus doing the drum beat. I'd bring the, the bass in, Henry would do the piano, build a guitar, vocals in, brass section down, and we could, and we could play. Because we had took our own sound man every bit, Huey, who was brilliant.
often he'd be looking at me, be down the front dance, everyone else was supposed to be on the desk, you know. But he was the, but he was he was a great bloke to everyone to and he, he came on to us and touring was great fun. Even time was always brilliant, the, the faster version, opening with that I always loved. Daydreamers Philosophy was a always a big one live I enjoyed. From the second album, no constitution what my own was doing that. I, that one we used to love playing live, consider me as well. And then with the later gigs when it was just the Bill Frank's band, we did a song called Just, which is on the great song. Yeah. Yeah, Genius and Grace, that album. Genius and Grace, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, No, you got it great. When I produced that with Bill, we recorded that in the studio. Some of that was recorded in our studio and we had in the flats in Fulham Court and the rest of it was done at a place called the Stone Room, which was a studio in Hammersmith that I was house engineer in there. And we made we made did a lot of that in there. And that's a great album. And but that particular song, yeah, love. That's why we we played it at Bill's funeral. That one with a couple of lads got up and played and sang that one because that was yeah, it just had everything. That song for me. Yeah, there was. If we didn't like playing them, I mean, we just wouldn't play them. The ones that didn't work, and because because we had them so worked out, some of the tempos were really strict. Some when you're trying to slow down a little bit, you've got to get the tempo bang on. And usually, bands play things much faster live than they do on the record. But certain songs need to be the right tempo, so we know. Yeah, like some songs, we'd have to use a click track just to get us in on the right time for the drummer. Otherwise, it wouldn't work. So we were that picky about making sure it was right, even though it looked like we were just throwing it together. It wasn't. Yeah. So, so your momentum with the gigging, and then you've got your the album comes out even time. Yeah. Um, yeah. And and then you get to a point where you need to make the, as you quite rightly say, the difficult second album. So obviously that it felt like that had a little bit more money thrown at it. You know, recording wise, Abbey Road. You know, yeah, I, I, you know strings and stuff like that. Uh, yeah. I, you know, what? How was? Talk us through that process. The second, yeah, for, for, for Bill and I, the second album was our favourite album by a long way. We used to listen to it a lot, and um, really surprised that it didn't didn't do better than it did. Um, the first album had a lot more spin on it than the. In fact, the first single had more spin on it than the last second album. The um, Country of Blind was three weeks in the studio to record three songs. You know, we could, like I say, all the demos we'd knock out demos that were good, five or six songs easily in a day. You know, we didn't need three weeks to make a record, but. The problem, I, I, the problem we had is because everyone was so interested, everyone was so sure that this is going to be good. We needed the right producers. We met lots of producers trying to decide who to make that first record with. So that um, having never made a record, only ever really made demos of things our own little records. We'd never made been in a big, like massive studio like they were in the in those days. Still, like a grand a day, people were paying in the mid eighties for a studio. And so we we picked the producers after meeting a few of them. And we thought, well, they know what they're doing, so we'll leave it to them. They'll tell us what to do, sort of thing, you know. And it, of course, it didn't go any way, anywhere near where we wanted it to go. Um, we were very disappointed with that. Country of Lion was always going to be the B side. The A side was always Even Tide or Sleepwalker. They were they, they were the two that were blowing. Oh, wow, wow. They were they were the songs that were blowing the companies away. Um, even the guys, the ones that didn't sign us, would come and see the marquee and say, "What, what happened to that song, Sleepwalker?" And for the album, we changed it because. We'd kind of did this big recording of it, which I do have, which is I don't think it's ever been released at the same time as the Eventide and Country Blind were made. Sleepwalkers was kind of just left there and we re-recorded it for the album with a different producer, which was much better. But we basically produced that ourselves, if, if the truth be told. 
with help from him. Paul was Paul Hardman was great. But so with the second album, they the record company didn't really want to. They the, the guy that signed us had left the label. Someone else was so someone else was looking after us. The A and R man, different A and R man. They were having hits with Tapao and the Cutting Crew. You know, they were clearly weren't the same as us. They were talking about not throwing much money at the second album. We wanted to use an engineer called Greg. What was his surname? Greg. Jeez. I talk about him all the time. And his second name's gone out of my head. Um, but he um, he did Life Rich Pageant for REM, which again for me is that's their best album by a long way. It's um, a fantastic album. We we're already meant to come and do engineering for us. The rock company at first refused to pay for him to come over and stay and did first class. He said, well, I'm not coming to come first. Oh, that nonsense. Anyway, they did. And he came over and we booked every road out. But by then it was down to £600 a day if you booked for a couple of weeks. So it was cheaper, much cheaper. You know, that, was, that was Greg Edward. I just looked it up. Greg Edward, that's it, Greg Edward. Yes. Yeah, I didn't mean him in my mind for some reason. Greg Edward, yeah. he was a brilliant, he's not around anymore, either. He, he, he wow. died Greg, yeah. But I loved him. He was a great bloke, just a brilliant engineer. And that's all we needed. We knew we knew how to produce a record by then. And if we didn't already, not on the first one, we, if we'd have done that first one, I think, or made that first one myself, I think it would have been a very different thing. But that's easy with hindsight. But this, yeah, so the second album, it was, you know, we, we were very excited about it. We thought the songs were brilliant. We loved the sound of it. All the tracks were recorded. The backing tracks, which was with Gus playing drums, me on bass and Bill on guitar, were all done live. So it set up in the studio as a three-piece band. Um, in Edinburgh, she did too, which was a dream because it's where the Beatles made all their greatest and we've got the joys to be in there. And and I, the song, um, The Same Contradiction, which is, again, brilliant record, brilliant song. take of the day that one take bang that, that's it you know then we kind of get, get, put the other brass and stuff on afterwards and the timpanis and all the other little bits that are on there and strings we added later but the basic tracks were all done live really quickly the first album was three months making it that album was two weeks recorded then we had a week we went to we, we took it to LA to mix it and do some percussive overdubs there and the great Bobby Hall would play with everybody from Fleetwood Mac to Bill Wilson everyone in between she did all the percussion in one day, which was a brilliant day that was. She was so fantastic. You just let all those shakers and tambourines going on there. It's unbelievable. It really is. It's so much more than what anyone can imagine. So that second album was brilliant fun to make, really quick, mixed quickly, not knowing it about, mixed at the same studio as Live Street Pageant, REM. Um, if you listen to them, you can, there are similarities even though in the sound, being the same engineer. Yeah, so it was, it was odd because the rock company didn't get behind it like they like they should have done. Um, yeah. The, the single, just that's just the way that it is. Really. We, I, I'm amazed this didn't get, um, you yeah. know, higher chart place because Absolutely. it's one. I think it, from on my humble opinion, I think it's one of one of the better songs. Um, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah, absolutely. No, it's a great, it's a great single. Yeah, great song.
Why do you think it didn't quite land? It's interesting. I mean, the BBC, but the it's all about airplay in those days. You cannot get on, you cannot get on the radio, and also videos. We never know from it. Our first videos, disastrous. So the, the country blind video. You know, we had all ideas about how we wanted it, and then you say no, we, we didn't know how to do it. So this guy knows what they're doing. Get them in, and we it ended up we had doing all these images on there that, that weren't allowed to be shown on children TV shows, and they were the ones that people were selling records on. So we get on programs like going live in those, those Saturday Superstore, whatever it was. If you're the only band on there, as opposed to the 10 that are on top of the pops, you know, if you're the only band on, you're going to sell a few records, and that's why everyone went on there. That's why they go on. It's just to sell records, you know. So you're looking for those slots. We did a couple of those, but by with the second album, the radio plays were down, and we upset the BBC, or they were upset by our political stance, and anything like that, and they just pulled the record here and there. I can remember Steve Wright not... Um, not we were due to be played on his programme and then he would have a slot three months later, like should have been a hit and play our records then, you know, which is no good. It's too late. And I think you're only flavour of the month for a while. And at first year, everyone was saying how great this band is and how great the big they're going to be. Because we weren't by the second album. It's that people weren't that interested. But that song, I think it was that one or consider me one of them, they stood to the round table on the BBC on a Friday night, which is a record review. Yeah. And after, and I, 20 years later, I was working in Germany, a guy called Steve Elson's there. He was in a, a few bands, and he made a few records, had a few big hits. And he was there now, he, he was on that show, and Simon Mayer said to him, if you heard that song, would you would you turn it off? Or, you know, or turn it off? He said, no, I don't, turn it up. He said, I'll turn it up and record it. So he, everyone was saying, it oh, great, sorry, oh, that sounded really messy. But um, it was well-received in, you know, in the industry, but not really by the press, who turned against us by then, and we couldn't do anything right as far as they were concerned. So that's that, oh, I can't put it on that. You know, if you don't get the airplay, I'll get it on TV. You're not going to sell them, simple as that, really. And did that, con- did that contribute to then the band perhaps, you know, um, maybe splitting and, you know, kind of, kind of, kind of, yeah, because when we, I think when we split up at the end, it was sort of 88, we did a couple of nights at the market. I think there were two gigs early 88, March, maybe something like that. And uh, we decided, oh, they were so good. And we decided after that, that we were going to knock it on the head. It, it, that, 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 they were the best moments, those gigs. And the, the Rural Company were not that interested. There was talk other Rural Companies might be interested in us. So if we got away from that deal, we might do get in with somebody else. But I think when we were kind of relieved to get out of it because we were a bit of a fight. We'd been through a couple of different managers as well, trying to get, get it to go how we wanted it to go. And I did, yeah, so it just... Yeah, it just started. We decided to quit before it became the great rock and roll dwindle, is what we used to say. So, I mean, we just give up while you still can pull a good crowd at the market, which is all we really wanted. Do you know what I mean? And uh, it would have been nice if it lasted a bit longer at that level, but it would be thought, well, let's stop because we can see it petering out. We didn't want it to. No, interesting. Um, so, obviously, after the Faith Brothers, Billy had a, a good solo career. Uh, yeah. The loyal fan base. Um, yeah. Obviously, obviously, tragic death. But, um, Tell, tell us what you know. What have you been continued to be involved in music in some way? Yeah, well, I, I was involved in most of Bill Solo stuff as well. Not all of it. We started recording Mass with a couple of other guys, but I ended coming in and mixing that and doing some extra recording on it and finished that album off. Did a Genius and Grace with him completely from start to finish. Um, Sex, Life and Meditation he did on his own. <clears throat> and then we did Total Duff Boutique together. That, that took quite a while to do, but we did that one from start to finish together. Um, and then the last one he, he, he did on his own as well. But you know, you know, those other periods I was working with other artists. I had a few bands. There was a band called Ixy, um, which was a, a great little um, four-piece. Um, didn't get signed. We put our own record out. Should have been signed definitely. The drummer in that was Nigel. who okay, went on to play with Bill and I later on. On he played on Total Dog Boutique and uh, loads of gigs with us as a three-piece with Nigel. He, he he's no longer with us either. Brilliant. Brilliant drummer. Um, that band was quite good. There was another. There were there were loads of bands. I won't name them all. But then then I started working as, as an engineer from the studio we'd built in Fulham Court. I'd basically spent 
quite a lot of time down there just learning my craft, if you like, how to run it all. And I'd get local bands in, charge them for the price for a reader tape and make demos with them and stuff like that. And that started to get good. And some of them was start moving around a bit and other studios, oh, where did you record this? Oh, I did it with Lee in the basement. And they said they wanted to meet me. So I ended up going work at these studios and started engineering at other studios. And then got into, I was approached to do some live engineering. We do some front of house. So yeah, I could do that. And then I'm doing stuff all over Europe, which was quite cool when the Berlin Wall came down in 89. Suddenly all the bands from the 60s and 70s that weren't allowed to go and play in East Eastern Europe were allowed to go there. But all the bands went out there, which was all everyone you can name from the 60s, apart from the Beatles and the Stones and the Who. Everyone else was there. Loads of bands from the 70s. Um, but none of the crew in Eastern Europe could speak English. So the, the bands were struggling to communicate with them. So they weren't English engineers. So the promoter came over and I met him. And I said, yeah, I'll come and see what it's like. And I loved it. I ended up doing that for many years, going off to weekends, doing festivals in Germany. Some of them, like, you know, 56,000 people, some of them huge. Again, some of little beer killers in Berlin and things like that, you know. So I enjoyed all that as an engineer. So I was working as an engineer in the studios and live as, um, and recording lots of other artists. And there was a company called Drum Tech, which was the big, biggest music school in Europe. And Vocal Tech, they all merged Vocal Tech, Drum Tech, and they eventually we sold to the BIM, which was a British British and Irish music piece, which was started by the guy from Iron Maiden, Bruce Dickinson. I taught for them for about seven years, teaching the lecturing about studio production techniques. But that only took about 60 days of my year. Um, still quite a few hundred students over those years. Made lots of good friends there, lots of great singers, drums, guitarists. Got helped with some of those, getting placements in bands and things like that, and give them a good experience of what it's like in a studio, what to expect as they move through their career. That was most enjoyable. So that that was a great period. So, yeah, I, I just continued in, uh, doing everything, really, live engineering, playing live, studio engineering and, and teaching. I mean, thank you so much for your time. It's been, you know, I'm I'm conscious that we're probably over what we said, but um, we're, we're really, re- really pleased. Um, Noel and I used to come and see... Yeah, when you were playing with Billy uh, in, some, yeah. you know, like the Troubadour and um, yeah. the Greyhound and um, yeah. regularly, some, you know. Some of, those, some of those Troubadour gigs, you know, Bill and I, they were some of our best gigs. They were you know, good. We, they were really we, good. We, we, we had a sort of thing at the top five gigs we'd done in our lifetime, you know. Three of them at least would be with me, him and Nigel and like Troubadour and places yeah. like that. You know, they were the best gigs we'd ever done, definitely. And, and other drums played with us as well were, were excellent. But yeah, the marquee will, will always be there for me as like the the, the top ones. The, the marquee, the troubadour, those type of clubs are that, that's what we love. And so yeah, we'd yeah, it, and every, every gig we did, it was hundred percent always. You know, every record we made, it was hundred percent nothing half baked. And I've always been that way. Any any record I make, any production I was involved in, any band I was with, it had to be hundred percent. My name attached to it, and if it's going to be half baked, I'm not doing that. You know, you, you, everything's got to be best it can be, and and it, and the most, most fun it can be as well. Doesn't have to be hard work. You know, it's so very. Our, our final question, Lee, is when we ask yeah. everybody. So yeah, uh, so it's nice. And then we're building up a nice little library of uh, of questions. But it's what what was your if you look back now, what was your best or favourite memory of the time with the Faith Brothers? It's hard. I'd need, I'd need time to think about that. I think making the second album, that, that, that time in Abbey Road, when we just get there in the morning and the three of us just go and start recording these tracks and go and listening back to them, that was um, that was such a brilliant experience. Other than that, it would it would just be, I guess, Hampshire voted when we supported the alarm at Hampshire Vodium. That would be important. That was the first time we ever had one of those group hugs before we went on stage, ever, because Bill and I as kids used to go and watch everyone play there. You know, every night of the week, we, we lived five miles from there, if less, leaving less. And we bunk in over the roof and watch bands in orchestra pit and stuff like everybody. So to actually get to play there, that we thought then that's it. That that was that was like a peak. So that was that's probably that a key moment. Yeah. With me playing there any any night at the marquee and then in the studio making the second album really. It was so much we were so free just to do what we wanted to do, you know. And and we had done all those gigs with such a tight unit. You know, it was it was a joy to play. We all knew exactly what anyone else was going to do. You know, if you, it, with a lot of the drums I've worked with, because when you get that coordination with the, between the drum and bass, that it, that's holding it all there. It's you, you can hear the link. For, you know, they know exactly what each other's doing, and it, 
that's what makes them that soul. It gives it that feel. Anything else that goes on top of that, can all, all the power is on there. Then you've got that foundation. And so when when you get to, when you're playing with people like that, it's there's there's nothing like it. I suppose that's that's it. That is brilliant. Thank you so much, and thank you so much for your time. We re- really appreciate it. You're very welcome. It's it's really good to talk to you. You know, there's 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 loads of areas in there when I look at the studio and things that we could have touched on, but this. So, you know, if everyone want to go down that road another time, I'm more than happy to have another chat. Always happy to do a part two. Cheers, guys. Thanks a lot. Have a good weekend. Thanks. Cheers. Cheers. Bye-bye. Bye. Well, there you go, Noel. That was was brilliant, wasn't it? Really interesting. Really interesting. I mean, I I know the band, and I like the band, as you know, very much, but I I learned stuff there I didn't know. Just uh, really interesting to talk to you. How enthusiastic he is as part of the band. He looks back with us with such a fondness of the time. There was no no regret or anything. It was just like a fabulous time for them, and and they they had it. Plus, also, I thought I took that he said about Country of the Blind was going to be a B-side. Well, that's an almost identical story to um, what Neil Dyer was talking about, Screen 3, around New Blood and the European journey. So, what you know, and Shaking Stevens gave him a PA. I mean, you know, stuff stuff like that I didn't realise at all. Random. I loved his phrase, the great rock and roll dwindle. Oh, that's hilarious. And I didn't realise that uh, Steve Owlett was Gus Jennings. So... <laughs> oh, right. Yes. No, me neither. <laughs> no. So there you go. So that was good. So yeah, great. Thank you. Um, th- thanks for your um, thanks for your time. Hope everybody enjoyed that. And, uh, and we'll see you next time on the next episode of the Uncharted 80s podcast. Mm-hmm.